0: Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Sin Explained by Graham Tomlin A little while ago, I went for a health check. They took a blood test, weighed me on the scales, poked around a bit. Soon afterwards, I got a printout of my general health. It told me that my blood pressure and liver function was pretty good, but I ought to watch my cholesterol, my calcium levels could be a bit higher, and my folate result was not great, whatever that is. It told me a lot about my physical health. What it didn't tell me was anything useful about my spiritual and moral well-being. I began to wonder where I could get a spiritual health check. Is there a way of telling whether I am in danger of diseases that might affect my soul rather than my body? As it happens, the Christian Church has long had a spiritual health check, a kind of tick list for spiritual and mental well-being. It's called the Seven Deadly Sins. And here on Seen and Unseen, we'll be running a series on it. Think of it as a chance to check out your own spiritual well-being. Of course, the word sin has a chequered past. Peccatio, peche, sunde, sin, whatever language it came in. It was once a terrifying word. A word that struck fear into the heart of almost every European. It had the same kind of emotional effect as the word Nazi or Cancer do for us today. It was something you wanted to avoid at all costs, something dreadful and dangerous. Now it has changed from a Rottweiler into a poodle. Sin has been calmed down, domesticated, neutered. The word is now usually spoken with a smirk or a heavy dose of irony. Describing something as sinful usually means you think it is naughty but nice or even seductive. We get perfumes called My Sin, Oh, even a bakery called Sinful Cakes. Poe-faced people who denounce something as sinful seem to just want to stop other people from enjoying themselves. Yet there were reasons why the word sin had such a ghastly aura about it in the past. Sin was not harmless transgression of some random moral code invented by repressed and frustrated medieval clerics. For our ancestors, sin described a pattern of life that was quite simply destructive. Each of the seven deadly sins were a sign of poor spiritual health, just like a raised PSI count might be a sign of prostate cancer, high blood pressure, a sign of a risk of heart attack and so on. Signs like greed, anger, lust, pride, could destroy families, friendships, happiness, peace of mind, innocence love, security, nature, and most importantly, our bond to our creator. They wrenched us out of a proper place in the world, which is why it's worth knowing whether you're suffering from them or not. A passage in the Bible talks of sinful desires which wage war against the soul. That captures it well. These impulses or patterns of behaviour were not just arbitrarily wrong, but self destructive. They waged a constant subtle and undermining war against the inner self. They were the deadly enemy of the soul. Sin was like a virus that got into everything, so that although life carried on, never quite worked in the way you felt it ought to. Life always had that grit in the oyster, the nagging soreness of a shoe that doesn't fit. The reminder of a dark secret that wouldn't go away. In many people's minds, sin means simply breaking the rules or the law. The difficulty with this idea is that it fails to get to the heart of the issue, and insistence on rules alone is often a sign of a shriveled, arid moral vision. It's what makes disapproving busybodies and prudes. Laws exist to protect things that are more important than laws like human lives, families, marriages, reputations, communities and peace. They are not ends in themselves. Rules and laws are vital for the protection of goodness, but do not itself go to the heart of goodness. They simply try to ensure its survival. One traditional way of thinking about sin was to classify it into types. Our ancestors were shrewd enough to know they needed to know their enemy – The idea of the seven deadly sins emerged from the early centuries of the church as a neat way of remembering some of the chief ways in which this deadly pattern of behaviour manifested itself. A glance through the traditional list of the seven deadly sins raises an obvious issue for anyone with any sense of contemporary life and morals. These are not the ones we'd identify as the chief causes of evil in our world. If anything... Our culture tends to admire these qualities, not avoid them. Lust is a sign of a healthy sexual appetite. Pride is a perfectly valid pleasure in our own achievements, and greed an essential motor for the economy. Lust, envy, and gluttony sell porn websites, cars, and food. So naturally, they are powerful forces dedicated to encouraging these habits to grow as rampant as possible, in our souls and societies. Of course, our forebears were not all as innocent as we might think. Of course, they didn't all detest sin because it has always carried a very real and powerful attraction. And unless we grasp this, we will never understand it. Life would be simple if things that were bad for us were ugly and things good for us were beautiful. But life isn't like that. As the great Saint Augustine said of his own younger tendency to steal just for the sake of it, it was foul and I loved it. The great works that have dealt with sin in the past had a simple aim, to uncover the ugliness of sin and unmask the veneer of attractiveness that it wears. Dante's great divine comedy did it by showing what these patterns of behaviour led to. It showed how each received its fitting punishment in a vision of such elegant symmetry that it seemed so obvious. In Dante's imaginary hell, the angry are condemned to fight each other for eternity, the slothful or indolent are condemned to running constantly and breathlessly, gluttons are made to lie in mud, exposed to constant rain and hail just like pigs, and end up eating rats, toads and snakes, as a parody of their excessive greed. Yet strangely, each sin always has at its heart something good. Medieval artistic depictions of sins portrayed them as misshapen and deformed versions of some good quality. The reason is not hard to find. Lust takes the delights to be found in sexual desire and satisfaction and distorts it, into an uncontrollable, damaging enslavement. Gluttony twists the pleasures of succulent roast beef and a glass of dark red Beaujolais and turns them into bloated, sickly over-consumption. There is always something of the grotesque about sin. In old fairgrounds, there was always one stall where you would place yourself in front of odd-shaped mirrors which would exaggerate parts of your body and shrink others. The result was, on the one hand, funny, but at the same time slightly frightening. Sin does the same thing. It takes something beautiful and makes it ugly by twisting it out of shape, so that it bears enough resemblance to the original to retain its attraction. But when seen in its full light, is as ugly as, well, sin. On one level, it's funny. Most of our jokes revolve around the grotesque, things out of place, misshapen, strange. Yet there is a dark side as well, and it is that that these medieval imaginative poems try to unveil. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga says, A sinful life is a partly depressing, partly ludicrous caricature of genuine human life. Although it can seem a monstrous and terrifying power that threatens to overwhelm everything. In the end, evil can only ever distort something that is, at its heart, good. Evil cannot create anything. It simply twists, caricatures or destroys. Sin is always a parody, a type of behaviour that often looks vaguely like goodness and often likes to pretend it is. And it sometimes takes some moral and spiritual discernment to tell the difference. Yet a difference there surely is. And the ability to tell good from evil is a real sign of human and personal maturity. But the reason why it is often difficult to tell is that sin always has At its heart, something good, a fit of temper against a brother or sister or child, usually justifies itself by the behaviour that provoked it in the first place, which was probably out of order. Jealousy or envy persuades itself that it is really proper outrage against the deep injustice that has given to someone else what I really deserve. This means, of course, that however monstrous sin or evil are, In the Christian view of the world, they are ultimately trivial and pathetic when compared to real goodness. St. Augustine struggled all his life to understand the nature of malevolence. Towards the end of that life, the reality of evil began to recede from his attention, to be replaced by something much bigger. As Cambridge historian Gillian Evans puts it, where first he had been aware of evil's perverseness and emptiness its huge darkness, its hopeless, entangled naughtiness. Now at last, perhaps, he had come to feel its essential triviality in comparison with the light and power of the good. In the coming weeks, here on Seen and Unseen, we will be asking some of our regular contributors to write on each of the seven deadly sins, analysing how they work their deadly poison, both in the past and in contemporary society. Listen out for each article as they come. It might just be the spiritual health check you need. Envy, Jealousy's Evil Cousin by Roger Bretherton One of my favourite exercises to facilitate with large groups of people is called You At Your Best. I introduce them to a list of positive qualities of character, wisdom, gratitude, kindness, self-control, bravery, etc. And then get them to pair up with someone they've never met. They tell a story of them at their best. When in the past week have they behaved in a way that was admirable? When do they surprise themselves with presence of mind or wisdom in action? It's a short exercise, it only takes six minutes. They tell the story and the other person spots the strengths of character they hear in it. Most of the stories aren't that exceptional. A problem solved at work, a small kindness shown to family, an awkward but necessary moment of truth. But invariably, the room becomes deafeningly voluble as people share their finest moments with a receptive audience. It is amazing how energised people become when given permission to talk about living close to their ideals. Within minutes, people who had previously never met are gabbling away to each other like long-lost relatives. Strangers have become friends. Outsiders feel included. No one wants to stop when I finally managed to rein in the raucous joy of connecting people, I'm curious to know how they found the exercise. Almost always, someone will say that they found it unnerving to talk positively about themselves. The hardest part of the exercise was to admit to a time when they were strong, or kind, or wise, or brave, or honest. They noticed a kind of internal barrier to their willingness to voice their own virtues. It feels socially dangerous or ethically wrong to say good things about themselves out loud. Their social conditioning tells them that bad things will happen to them if they do. When someone voices a sentiment like this, a nervousness to acknowledge the goodness they contribute to the world, it is not an expression of humility or modesty. More likely at some point, perhaps for a prolonged period of time, the very things that are best and most beautiful about them have been attacked and criticised. I'm pretty sure I'm dealing with a victim of envy. Envy is greatly misunderstood in our time. It was once named among the seven deadly sins, and deadly because, when unchecked, it has the capacity to possess a human being entirely, to become their modus operandi, to subtly be pollute every thread of relationship with which they have to connect. Sin because, well, as a way of being, it poisons any prospect of joyful human community for those who are beholden to it. To make matters worse, we are often unclear about the terminology, particularly the difference between jealousy and envy. But the distinction is crucial. To be jealous is to protect and defend what is ours. Most obviously demonstrated in sexual or romantic relationships, jealousy is the instinct to protect the boundaries of a precious relationship, to view anything that threatens our commitment to those we love as a temptation to be resisted. Sure, it can be overplayed, it can become possessive or confining. But if our partner never shows jealousy, never expresses frustration at the things that spoil or reduce the quality of our shared intimacy, we are likely to wonder if they care at all. Advocates of the sexual revolution have been predicting the demise of sexual jealousy since the 1960s. They view it as a holdover from our evolutionary origins, no longer necessary in the contemporary world, past its sell-by date and soon to be dispensed in the ear of free love. But rumours of the death of sexual jealousy have been greatly exaggerated. Our hardwired instinct to hang on to love still hangs on. Most of us feel that a relationship entirely stripped of jealousy is a relationship stripped of love. The psychological contours of envy are similar, but darkly different. If jealousy wishes to cling to what is good... Envy aims to destroy it. If to be jealous is to preserve what is ours, to be envious is to resent others for having what is theirs. Sometimes we don't even want the things we envy. We just can't bear the thought of someone else having them. Envy sees the strength, talent, or goodness of others as a threat, and if we can't own them, vows to destroy them. It is the message behind every honor killing. The mantra of every domestic abuser, if I can't have you, nobody can. It is the ethos of the competitive workplace in which others' success is our failure. With every colleague who succeeds, something inside of us dies. But this isn't how envy is usually portrayed. Looking at the pop culture definitions of envy that surround us, we could be forgiven for thinking envy is a bit of a laugh. Harmless, desirable, even good. Hardly a deadly sin. Nowhere near the toxic desire to destroy the unique beauty of the other. More like the branding of our favourite nail salon or eau de parfum. We are immersed in propaganda for envy light. The cheeky and indulgent desire to make other people wish they were us. There can only be one. We are subject to a misdiscretion. As every totalitarian propagandist knows, the best way to make people malleable is not to present them with a clear thesis with which they can argue, but to drown them in so much inconsequential information, so much white noise, that they can no longer discern what really deserves their attention. We are made to look in the wrong direction. Spotting the minor envies... But completely oblivious to the major envies that act as invisible killers in our social water supply. We spot the envies we can laugh at while passing the envies that leak into everyday life undetected, like carbon monoxide. We strain out the gnats but swallow the camel. Envy, in its most deadly form, is often too familiar to be noticed. Ever since Cain killed Abel, the most damaging expressions of envy have been found in families. Siblings compete against one another for the limited resource of parental affection and devise a surprisingly innovative set of chess moves designed to gain approval. Some families resort to an ever-shifting set of alliances and betrayals, like a royal court, a game of musical chairs in which the aim is not to land in the blame seat, when the music stops. Other families, especially larger families, resolve the issue by carving out unique turf for each child. We recognise these stereotypes. The cool one, the funny one, the clever one, the spiritual one, the naughty one. The Spice Girls were not the first to realise that a one-word identity can help us stand out from the crowd. It works fine, till we run into someone else who has aligned themselves with the same brand. Sitcoms are filled with the comedic fallout that occurs when people meet their doppelganger in the workplace. There can only be one, one boss, one comedian, one intellectual, one golden boy, one damsel in distress, and envious war engulfs the boardrooms, staff rooms, and multi-story car parks in which two meet. If we ever notice the green-eyed monster rising within us, we would do well to ask ourselves, what is the turf I thought was mine that this person is trespassing upon? If we can detach ourselves from the desire to destroy our competitor and reflect on that question, we'll come to realise we were always much more than the fistful of traits that defined us in our family. But perhaps the main reason envy is so bad The reason it consistently ends up on those ancient lists of how not to be is that it has no end game. There is no better future into which envy would deliver us. It simply aims to negate or nullify whatever threatens our ego at any given moment. If only X were not like that, goes the logic of envy, then everything would be okay. But envy is a myopic state. It can see no further than the restoration of a self centered status quo. It contributes nothing to the thriving life of joy and love usually associated with the decentering of the self. The comparison with jealousy is again illustrative. Ultimately, a jealous act in friendship or marriage or the workplace, when performed skillfully, is an act of hope. It values what is and holds the belief that the world will be better for everyone if the goodness we know now can be nurtured and preserved into the future. It requires not just an opposition to that which would spoil what is good, but gratitude for the good we already have. Jealousy enjoys, appreciates and savours the beauty that is already present and inspires to magnify its legacy. Envy despises what is, and can conceive of no other response than burning it to the ground. The celebration of envy, when taken to its logical conclusion, is the pursuit of a fiction, an impossible fantasy that can never be realised. It invites us to imagine nullifying the strength of all others so the entire world revolves around us the only star before an obsequious audience, coerced into adoration. Envy partakes of a cynical philosophy of non-existence, and this is what makes it a deadly sin. Not that it is naughty but fun, but that it is pointless and empty. No, I'll Never Have Enough by Jane Williams In the old Humphrey Bogart film Key Largo, the villain, played with vicious childishness by Edward G. Robinson, is asked by Bogie what he wants. Rocco, Robinson's character, thinks for a bit and then says that what Rocco wants is more. Will you ever have enough? Bogie asks. And Robinson thinks about it for a moment before replying... I never have so far. No, I'll never have enough. That is greed in a vivid nutshell. Rocco doesn't want anything in particular, and he doesn't value anything in itself. He just has a vast, unspecific, insatiable desire for anything and everything, particularly if it belongs to someone else. Greed, like all the seven deadly sins, is a capital or cardinal sin, meaning it is a disposition from which destructive, abusive actions flow. Having this overmastering tendency to greed makes us act in a whole variety of ways that are damaging and abusive to others and to ourselves. Greed leads to a variety of sins. Rapacious greed does not love what it desires, it is driven to possess does not value what it has because while there is more out there somewhere greed must have it it does not care what or whom it attacks or destroys anything that stands in its way must be obliterated it does not want to admire or use what it seeks it merely needs to possess it and the moment the sought after thing is achieved all consuming greed moves on to the next thing always seeking more always despising what it has as not enough. Greed is destructive both on the personal front and also as it shapes societies. Individuals ruled by greed cannot maintain love or friendship or loyalty. Their eyes are always on the next thing, always hungry for what they have not got. They leave behind them without a backward glance hurt and broken friends, family, colleagues, jobs... And if the fallout is clear for all the people around someone driven by greed, it is also obvious that it destroys the greedy as well. Nothing can ever satisfy someone consumed by greed. There is no rest, no peace, no pleasure, because the world is full of things still to be grabbed at. Jesus is quoted as having said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. It's a warning to beware of what you long for, because we are so powerfully shaped by our desires. But if all greed longs for is more, then in the end, the greedy person or society has no heart at all. It is shaped only by a drive for possession, opening up a vast and echoing emptiness where an actual longed-for being or thing should live overpowering greed empties even the greedy of worth they can never be successful because they do not have what they want which is everything it is obvious how greed is deadly for individuals but it's also deadly when it becomes a motivating force for society at large the media have recently been talking again about greedflation the theory behind the term is much debated but the word itself is instantly memorable. Institutions that are governed primarily by the need for more drive an insatiable economy, always needing more consumers, more profit, more rewards. Dissatisfaction and envy are the necessary tools of a society and economy of greed. Individuals and groups that try to opt out of this out-of-control consumerism are viewed as a threat, and must be diminished, dismissed, cast out. It is dangerous in such a society ever to ask, do we really need more? That is the emperor's new clothes question, which must be avoided at all costs. Surveys that ask people at different income levels whether they feel they have enough, nearly always find that everyone would like just a little bit more. Everyone would like to be at the next level up of income and possessions. But if they achieve the next level, then, strangely, they find that it is actually the level above that they really want. The World Happiness Report, which has been regularly updated for the last 10 years, works with a complex set of definitions of what makes for happiness for individuals and for societies. Finland regularly tops the chart of happiest countries in the world, which Finns find a bit puzzling, apparently. They don't see themselves as cheerful, jolly people, but they do speak of a national characteristic that might be described as contentment. Contentment lays and acts at the roots of greed. It allows us to see what we have and value it, rather than despising it because there are things that we have not got. One of the values that the World Happiness Report notes as making for greater happiness is altruism. Doing good and receiving goodness from others makes both parties happier. The Christian tradition has known this for a long time. Cardinal sins have their opposing cardinal virtues, dispositions that we can cultivate to help us to free ourselves from enslaving habits like greed. Charity is the cardinal virtue that undermines the sin of greed. When we give to others from our own resources – of time, money, attention, care, prayer, help of any kind, we begin to loosen the deadly grip of insatiable greed upon ourselves and our world. Greed can't live alongside charity or altruism. Charity sees real people and situations in need and supplies what it can from its own resources. Greed sees only more and more objects to be acquired never able to see what it already has, never able to share or be content. Deadly sins lead to behaviour that makes for misery, both for those driven by them and for those on the receiving end of them. That's why they're called deadly. They're not just a bit naughty. They are actively destructive of human flourishing, both personal and communal. There is so much in our society that positively encourages greed, the reckless desire for more, which can never be satisfied. But there are ways of combating this most pernicious of habits. One is the practice of gratitude. Instead of thinking about what we haven't got or would like to have or what someone else has, we can think of what we've got and think of it as a gift, something to say thank you for. It's a good habit to build into every day, perhaps as we go to bed, taking just a few minutes to think about the good things that have come to us that day. A child's smile, a gleam of sunshine, a hug from a friend or partner, a delicious piece of bread. Everyday things that we can take for granted, in which case they go unnoticed. Or we can see that they are gifts to be grateful for which enlarge our spirits and our well-being. Gratitude is a virtuous circle. It is lovely to be on the receiving end of gratitude, as well as to practice being grateful. And Gratitude often leads to another excellent practice for undermining greed, which is charity or altruism. If we are learning how to say thank you for what we have, we may also want to share what we now notice that we have. If we've given the gift of gratitude and see how it makes us and the receiver feel, we may want to extend that further and further. Worth a try? Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from seen and unseen aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.